What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. Full house today, Jake uh, Dello, Gabby Magnuson, Kiara Mitchell, Pete McKenzie. Uh, I only had one, not like nothing's going on in the world, but I only had one uh, quick thing to mention before we get to the show today. It's a shout out to a grassroots activist organization called Demand Progress. They whipped 50-plus progressive organizations to write a letter that has not been publicly released, but the letter is to the Biden campaign, urging him to take more of a progressive stance on, on foreign policy issues generally, but in particular on defense spending. So we don't see the full content of the letter, but they're talking about um, cutting $200 million from the defense budget, which is actually not that huge of a cut, uh, given how large yeah. it is. Shelving the nuclear modernization initiative, which was supposed to cost uh, $1 trillion to $1.5 trillion, and stopping the continuation of this sixth branch of the military, the Space Force, just not having a Space Force, I think we'll get by. And that's kind of the agenda. And they're presenting it as, please do this as a, as a favor to the left, but also like, hey, this is what Sanders was running on, and to some extent Warren, and it was a winner. This is a, you can win, like, this is how Obama, like his notable thing in 2008 when he ran for president was that he was against the Iraq war at a time when the establishment was mostly for it. Making the case to the Biden team that a winning strategy is a more progressive position on foreign policy. And so uh, I appreciate them doing the Lord's work or uh, if you're an atheist, <laughs> Marx's work. I don't know. I appreciate like obviously these are all these are all really laudable goals, fully support it, doing demand actions, doing really great work. I do wonder about canceling Space Force, you know, not because the yeah. organization will do any good, but like there's a great Netflix show about it coming up. And I, I'm really, I'd be gutted if that got canceled. <laughs> That's how season one will probably end with Space Force being canceled. Yeah. And actually, like, um, there is merit to having certain functions that you do in space because you have to protect satellites and things. But those functions still exist right now under the Air Force, and they're just migrating under a new bureaucracy. So it's like maybe you can 
you have a separate debate about what capabilities you want in space, if any, but to what, why do you need an actual space force for that? As opposed to just yeah. folding it into <laughs> what you've got. Anyways, shout out to demand progress. Uh, even though Pete's hating sort of. Let's do prediction market where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for prediction market this week, question one, will Turkey officially deploy its armed forces in Yemen before September? Maybe so. Maybe I'll say yes. It's interesting. Yemen has become a a fucking nightmare of instability. And Turkey is, I mean, increasingly has no qualms about using and deploying military force. There's an argument to be made that Erdogan is positioning Turkey with a very much imperial foreign policy. And yeah. if that, to the extent that's the case, Turkey will have no problem uh, marching into Yemen, so to speak. Uh, the only question is like, will there be other geopolitical factors that might constrain Turkey from doing so? And I don't know that there will. Like they went into Syria after the Kurds, even though Russia was there, even though Russia didn't necessarily uh, want that, at least in certain areas of, of Syria. So Russia was not a constraining factor for Turkish deployments into Syria. I don't know that Russia even cares if Turkey is in Yemen. Uh, yeah. What strategic value would Turkey get from being in Yemen? Uh, just stability. Like you get to have positive control over stability. The, okay. There is a, if you have an imperialist foreign policy, the implicitly you're trying to extract resources from that country in whatever like not always like minerals or whatever but resources in the form of of labor or control of markets for your goods and so it's a control strategy imperialism is a kind of control strategy i guess and if that properly characterizes turkey which we don't normally think of as an empire or at least not nowadays because <laughs> the... <laughs> yeah, so some yeah. some really do. <laughs> yeah, Ottomans they be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't. I've never actually heard anybody, to be fair, call Turkey an, an empire or like to express imp imperial ambitions. It's just to me that's what the Syrian intervention looked like. Yeah, and the, the sphere of influence politics seemed to be the best description of Turkey Russia competition in Syria. And so I'm extrapolating from that that because I don't know what else am I going to grab onto, <laughs> that Turkey has an imperial foreign policy, which means if they see insecurity justifications in Yemen, which there, there are, nobody's going to be able to stabilize Yemen and they care about stability in Yemen, then they will, they will enter. Uh, and while they're there, they might pillage the place. Well, sticking with imperialism, question two this week. Will any other countries formally recognize Taiwan's place in the World Health Organization by August? And this is sort of coming on the back of New Zealand sticking with supporting Taiwan after being rebuked by China throughout last week. Yeah, well, so the, the proper place of Taiwan in the, in the WHO is as an observer, or like that's what everybody is backing. And by everybody, I, actually, it's only like a handful of countries, actually. But New Zealand is one of them. Yeah, yeah. Standing at this point with democracies, with a lot of the key Western countries. And it's... It's not even for, well, I think the U.S. wants Taiwan to have full membership in the in the WHO, but New Zealand and Australia are just lobbying for Taiwan to retain an observer status, uh, which wouldn't even be controversial if it wasn't for the fact that they're basically blacklisted right now because of China, because of corruption of international institutions. 
which is a harbinger of the future if nothing changes. I don't think that anybody else is going to jump on this bandwagon between okay. now and August. I even saw Too news reports lose, that... Or? Well, I even saw reports that New Zealand... Like, there are some critics in New Zealand of this decision, even though it was a pretty milk toast, banal... This shouldn't yeah. be controversial, you know? Particularly because Taiwan has it, it it is a case study it is it is a source of data about this virus it's a, it's useful in comparison and insights that they might have about how they're dealing with it need to be part of the conversation within the world health organization uh, and it's harder yeah. to do that when it's got like chinese fingerprints all over it <laughs> well let's prediction market this week all right Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. Two tweets from me this week. First is from somebody called Quantian, who has quite a large following, despite being a weird name, and I don't know who this is. Um, and they just, they say something, they tell a hilarious little story here. They say, look, the global economy is quite simple. The world produces worthless stuff that they cannot consume. They bring it to America, which happily gives them valuable dollars for their worthless stuff. The world then smirks to itself, imagining it has hoodwinked those American rubes. However, on the way out the door, the world has an epiphany. Their dollars are so valuable, they cannot risk bringing them back home because every dollar will realize, or everyone will realize how much cooler they are than their local currency and demand dollars instead, which collapses their economy instantly. At that exact moment, Chad Laxbro from Wall Street sh shows. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah! This is so good. Shows up and tells them about his new fentanyl-backed subprime securities that will keep their dollars safe and sound in America. Enthralled by this intellectual titan, they all hand over their dollars and leave empty-handed. This process repeats for several years until Chad's bonus vests and he sends the world an NAV pack showing that somehow they lost all their dollars. <laughs> wow, what a shame. America now gets to keep both its dollars as well as the stuff and nobody else in this story matters. The end. You're <laughs> actually golden. I don't know if this guy's fucking like a Marxist or a genius or what, but like <laughs> this is so right. This is the fucking economy, man. This is... This was, is globalization. I was going to say, the, what you said, they both go hand in hand usually, man. But... <laughs> That's what you say. For the record, I'm not a Marxist. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Chad Laxbro. I don't, this is like a very good... to me, Chad Laxbro. The story is too real. I feel like the establishment needs to read and absorb this because this is, this is the economy that they're actually defending, which is one of the reasons I liked Warren so much because... She saw this story for what it was and decided, like, look, if capitalism is going to keep existing, we need to fix this shit. Because um, this is a ridiculous fucking story. The end. Final tweet is not from um, Secretary Pompeo, but he's the start of it. So Pompeo says in a tweet two years ago, at real Donald Trump announced the bold decision to protect the world from Iran's violence and nuclear threats by withdrawing from the Iran deal. <laughs> <laughs> fucking gaslighting. Like get through that. <laughs> it gets better. Today, Americans are safer and the Middle East is more peaceful than if we had remained in the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. So, first of all, fuck you, Mike Pompeo. Um, second of all, Caitlin Talmadge, who teaches at uh, Georgetown, sort of a friend, 
she says on top of Pompeo's tweet, is that why Iran was lobbing ballistic missiles at U.S. bases in January and we just awarded Purple Hearts to all the personnel who were injured? Interesting definition of peace and safety. She's pointing to the evidence about this decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal as literally directly making us less secure. There's actual evidence in the form of casualties from Iran attacks because those attacks were made possible by creating a rivalry where you walk away reneged from this deal. And uh, it couldn't be more obvious, so I appreciate that she's pointing it out. Foreign policy is often really difficult because it's very hard to identify clear chains of causation between one event and another. That's not the case here. This is the most obvious <laughs> causal link between walking away from the Iran deal and then coming to conflict into conflict with Iran. Actual people getting injured that you could possibly have. It's ridiculous. And it's insane that that still doesn't get picked up. Yes. And this is yeah. like, your point is totally true. And I think that that's like Pompeo and Trump, they take advantage of the fact that causation is hard to just gaslight the shit out of us with this obvious, the causal chain is obvious here. But the fact that causation is generally hard is something that they exploit to tell lies. If anyone believes Pompeo's tweet, I'll happily... I'm sure that my contemporary politics in the Middle East textbook, which I have been hitting myself with because I am really annoyed at that tweet. <laughs> it's just... Wait, so is your textbook a casualty of this also or your head? <laughs> no, my textbook's all right. The notes in it, maybe not. Nice. Cool. Look right. So the first tweet I have for this week comes from Don Moynihan, who's a professor at Georgetown as well. So the tweet I'm highlighting comes from his thread on what COVID-19 has revealed about American society, primarily about how partisanship has rotted the capacity of the American system to take on big tasks. Good governance ultimately demands some basic rationality, but we live in a country where one political party has incorporated, encouraged, and deified the paranoid style of conspiratorial thinking to the point where it can no longer commit to reality-based governing. And I think like the description hits hard. I mean, out of context, it completely sounds like something out of a dystopian novel. I mean, it sounds like a fair statement to say, right? Yeah, I mean, so this is like, maybe this is the theme of the episode, but he's <laughs> incompetence of the administration. It's incompetence all the way down, man. It, like, at every level, foreign policy and domestic. Um, and the consequences play out differently depending on the domain. Uh, you know, it's it's body counts to the pandemic when you don't take adequate responses in time against COVID-19, right? But in foreign policy, it plays out differently, like the Iran casualties thing and like allies being freaked out. This really is the incompetence episode. And that's what he's pointing at, right? <laughs> yeah, right, Just, for sure. Incompetence all the way down is a fantastic episode title. Incompetence all the way down. I like it. Yeah. I mean, I don't oh, like it, but yeah. Awesome. So then the uh, second tweet for this week I have is from Benjamin R. Young who is a postdoctoral fellow in strategy and policy at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. The, the context of the tweets I'm about to highlight regard the recent COVID outbreak in Taiwan nightclubs in Seoul, just after South Korea had officially relaxed its social distancing guidelines. Um, so like, what's important to note is that a number of these clubs include LGBTQ -like community areas. So this outbreak, Young's tweets read, has the chance to of further alienating the LGBTQ community and heightening homophobia in South Korea which following all the news articles and social media, if you look at it, was something that's already happened. Young continues on saying, I hope the Western news media focuses on this fine line between privacy invasion and public health in South Korea, and not just continually heaps uncritical praise at South Korea's COVID-19 response. Yeah, so Ben Young, I think he's actually at 
he didn't update his profile, but he's at Dakota State <laughs> University now. He's, yeah. a, he's a friend of the pod anyway, but he, he's a, obviously a career watcher. And he's pointing out something here that really doesn't get picked up on by like international media. There's this pernicious tendency in Western media to look at Korea and look at South Korea as like just one thing or like what's the top line story. And the top line story for months now has been the South Korean success of COVID-19. But there is this kind of gross, disconcerting like underbelly because uh, as a Korean friend in South Korea once told me, there are no gay people in South Korea. Did you know that? Oh, big oof. <laughs> oh, oh, no. I'm pretty sure that's Dude, are you fucking no. serious? He was yeah. dead serious. No gay... Because they don't recognize them. Like, it's like being a, you know, fucking ethnic minority in Myanmar. Oh, right. Like, yeah. you just... You're not treated as... I like, could just human. feel the rage go through me. Yeah. It's fucked that. up. Also, not crazy... It's not all that surprising if you're talking about a, like, patriarchal confucian society it's just what do you expect it's a patriarchal society right confucianism is all about hierarchy i'm not throwing shade at the fucking culture but man are you surprised that that would coincide with like societal level lgbtq uh bigotry yeah, mm. anyway i think part of the thing problem. that kind of like worried about it as well was kind of essentially you're, you're gonna have people having to choose like oh do i like admit to the authorities kind of you know, where I've been kind of deal, or do I ostracize myself, especially mm. at this point? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's like racial profiling in New York, but of, of gay people. Anyway, cool. so shout out to Ben. Hopefully media pays attention. I doubt they will. Let's jump into armchair analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. Okay, cool. So we'll jump into armchair analysis. And this week, we're going a bit outside of our usual stable, and we're taking an article from Australian Foreign Affairs. Um, and it's an article by Brendan Taylor titled, Message to Washington, How to Maximize US Strength in Asia. And it's a deep interrogation of the US's role in the Asia Pacific and what Australia, as a key US ally, should do as the conflict intensifies between the US and China. Tellingly, it's appearing in an edition of Australian Foreign Affairs titled Can We Trust America, which is a good indication of the content of the piece. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a, bit on... a bit on the nose, yeah. <laughs> and the bulk of the piece is, is good but largely well-worn analysis about how the US's position has changed in Asia recently, so identifying the strengths and weaknesses of the American position. But Taylor's essentially arguing that there has to be a third way for Australian foreign policy between China hawks and US skeptics. And he says that Australia should adopt a plan of, de uh, that America, sorry, should adopt a plan of Dean Atchison devised the Cold War, where the US ought to build on situations of strength and withdraw from positions of weakness. He identifies those situations of strength being Japan and the Korean Peninsula and the situations of weakness being Taiwan and the South China Sea. The problem for in Taylor's eyes is that Trump and American foreign policy generally is nowhere near that target. It's not specific enough and not sophisticated enough to, to build on those situations of strength. And so Taylor's saying Australia has to push America to be better. It's pretty contemptuous of, of America's strategic nous without being spurred by its allies. And I thought it was a really interesting indication of how even observers within American allies who are broadly supportive of those allies remaining affiliated with America are, are deeply contemptuous about American 
strategic nows and are increasingly fearful about American commitment. Yeah. So shout out to Brendan Taylor. This so I've seen over the the past months Australian uh, officials, former officials, think tankers, like what we'd broadly consider like the Australian policy elite. You know, they're very divided. Like uh, you hint at in the piece about the China question, about the U.S. question. It's a pretty histrionic debate in contrast to New Zealand. This whole the, the big China question slash America question. It's it's histrionic in a way that mimics, I think, in a lot of senses, the debate in Washington. You're either a red baiting racist or you're a panda hugging dove, you know, and it's like there's nothing in between. And Brendan is, is panda hugging dove. Did you say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've <heard> that. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. To me, it's just normal, or it's like a normal criticism of of kind of like leftist <laughs> positions, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I like right. panda hugging sounds pretty fun. <laughs> so Brendan is is sort of threading the needle here, or like navigating you know, these extreme currents. And the analysis in the piece I thought was like basically correct. Summoning Dean Acheson is interesting. Because in the particular, I think it's correct, right? You focus on your situations of strength, quote unquote, and you build around those or build on those. And you that that's just kind of like prudent strategy. It's, it's a very rational thing to do. But Dean Atchison was also like Cold War Uberhawk. And so and he made there were pitfalls in his own decision making, including about situations of strength, like Brendan mentions in the piece where he drew this defense perimeter that excluded the Korean Peninsula, which gave a green light to North Korea to come south and start the Korean War. Mm. And so one of the one of the problems is like, it seems broadly accurate to talk about concentrating, doubling down on your situations of strength, but there's a lot of like fuzzy interpretation with what that would mean in practice. Uh, there's, there's, you know, an art or an imprecision to how you would translate or apply this principle of focusing on your strengths, playing to your strengths. I think it's correct that the alliances with South Korea, Japan, and Australia are probably America's greatest asset, other than the ability to fucking kill everybody at a moment's notice. That's also a kind of asset. And so allies are something that is valuable to the U.S. And I also think it's not wrong to point out that the South China Sea is a point of weakness that Taiwan is a point of weakness in a larger competition with China because their position is better than ours on both issues, uh, more winnable than ours on both issues. But uh, how reflective? Oh, sorry, you go there. No, 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 good. I was just going to ask how reflective you think analysis like this, an opinion like this, is of the broad kind of blob consensus amongst American allies in the region. Uh, like you mean like the Australian version of blob, or like does this sentiment? Is this sentiment shared by the Washington blob? Like the Australian version of the blob. Like is um is Taylor's <laughs> analysis the kind of the kind of analysis <laughs> that is pretty widespread amongst, you know, the Australian blob, let's go Japanese blob, throw, throw all the blobs in there. I never thought about other countries having blobs, but I think you're right. And I don't know if it's even I like I don't know that it's even a bad thing. Like in Washington, the blob has of course like negative connotation because our default setting seems to be like proactive war but the other blobs might just be functionally technocratic which is to mean rational which is kind of like what you would want so yeah like from what i've seen this is a very much a middle view uh i don't I, it's hard to as an outsider to judge the australian debate 
hardcore, but this seems to me like striking a middle ground and it seems reasonable. And the thing that is worth taking away more than any of the other stuff is this question of competence, which is, uh, I have a think tank report coming out soon about uh, what I call strategic incompetence, which is driving alliance security dilemmas. It's causing insecurities in our allies. It's undermining our ability to do what we want strategically, we being the U.S., and it's all because we are not coherent, because we don't match means to ends in any kind of proportionality. We take risks wantonly. It's like we are playing the, the worst practices of, of strategy making. We make. We're making bad bets where we make bets at all. We undermine ourselves. We say things different from what our actions say. We have one part of the government saying something different than another part of the government. You couldn't design a more incoherent, strategically incoherent, incompetent set of policies, but it's very impolitic to call that out in certain ally countries if you're pro-US because you want to be a backer of the US. And the thing that I like about Brendan, Brendan's pro-U.S. as far as I know, but he's not afraid to call out this high degree of incompetence. And we saw this a couple podcasts ago. We I talked about the government of Japan official writing in the American interest, yeah. the anonymous yeah. fucking letter. That was like, that. like the Japanese are like the most conservative, reserved, you know, diplomatic functionaries in the world for them to take a step like that is so huge and for the step to be ringing alarm bells about the the perceived incompetence of the trump administration and how that redounds to nobody's benefit except for america's enemies that's concerning man and i heard the same thing when i was in korea late last year and so like it, this is the pattern our allies are experiencing versions of um, abandonment fears and entrapment fears at the same time and at, a, at the level of like symptoms, it's because they're seeing a, we are causing more uncertainty in the world. We are causing insecurities. Yeah. But the reason we're causing insecurities is because we're incompetent. If you want to play the coercion game, the risk-taking game, you, you have to be rational. If, if the presumption of rationality is not there, there's no game to be played, man. Do you want the person with their finger on the button that is in charge of like the nuclear umbrella for your country? Do you want them... To be like, well, maybe I'll change my mind today. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll yeah. extort my allies. Yeah. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll threaten nuclear war. Maybe I won't. Or maybe I will say I'm going to do something and then not do it. Like, could you? That's so fucking dangerous from the the clients, the allies' perspective. So I think competence is like a, a growing theme. I think historians will look back and seize on that incompetence as being like a major focal mm. point of problems. I was just going to ask, um, is every, do you think everything is just going to stay incompetent at least for the next while, even like past the Trump administration? If, or do you think things will get slowly coherent? It depends. At least Biden would have a lot of rational people advising him, people who know what they're doing. And I think there would be my sense of things right now in Washington is for what it's worth, is that there is an effort to focus on first principles of alliance management, of restoring coherence. There's like a there's a keen awareness that we've gone off the rails and that we're perceived as very unreliable. And so there's going to be an effort to tack back in the opposite direction, to restore certainty, restore competence. The question is like how that will be perceived. And are we going to do something really stupid in the name of restoring reliability like 
I don't know, like going to war over a questionable peripheral issue or something. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So that's outstanding. Competence, incompetence. That's that's the theme of what's going on right now. The only thing I disagreed with in this piece was the presumption or the premise, which was more um, subtextual, but the idea that there was anything that Australia could do or that even like U.S. officials could do to restore certainty and competence right now. As long as Trump is there and as long as his minions are there, like even if you put Pence in at the top, as long as these all these Matt Pottinger guys and everybody are still in place, you're still going to have like a high degree of incoherence and incompetence. These Trump is not helping anything, but the the contrarian decisions that are being made and these bad risky wagers that are being made and the gobs of money that are being spent on defense without clear strategies driving them, all of that will, will still be in place as long as this administration is there. So I, I don't think there's anything to be done right now except for biding time and hedging your bets. And that looks a little, what that should look like is kind of different for everybody. Um, smaller powers need some sort of alternative regional architecture that simply doesn't exist yet. But, you know, at a defense level, it is reasonable. I wouldn't advise this, but it's reasonable to me for countries who count on the U.S. to bring in and invest in substitute capabilities that they count on the U.S. for. Does that mean nukes? I don't know. I hope not. But I can see people making the argument for sure. It's rational. Um, and in Australia's case, they're they're talking about like long range conventional bombers and like all this other shit. So like their defense debates are getting very interesting because of the U.S. Because planning five, 10 years in the future, it's not smart to bet on relying on the U.S. And that's the world that Trump has made for us. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So for Ask Me Anything this week, the first question is from Mike Jacobson from Georgetown University. Did you see the Twitter feud about China cheap talk between Josh Schifferson and Pete Mattis? What do you make of it? So I did see this cheap talk Twitter feud. Uh, I'm actually kind of annoyed by it. So Josh Schifferson is an IR scholar. He's not a China expert, doesn't doesn't speak Mandarin or whatever. Pete Mattis is not a scholar. He does read and write Mandarin. He makes a living basically like interpreting PLA documents and um, fear-mongering about China. And Josh Schifferson, Jeff Schifferson is coming at the questions about Chinese intentions from the view of IR theory, because that's his background. And the debate such as it is, is about whether we should believe China when their leaders or their documents talk about their either gross unlimited ambitions or their intent to unify with Taiwan by force with necessary or by force if necessary. And the whole debate is like pretty degenerative, but it activated lots of people on both sides. So lot hundreds of people that were hawks and hundreds of people that were doves got involved and said their two cents or whatever. And it's just like everybody kind of lost the plot. These two positions are not, I mean, for one thing, they didn't change anybody's opinion by having this debate <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. But they also were like, they're not 100% at odds. You can accept the Pete Mattis position that China is telling us with their strategic documents that they have like unlimited ambitions or that they're going to be like quite aggressive on the world stage. But that still leaves open the question of like, what are they going to, what specifically will they do, right? 
And, you know, if you're like a military planner or something, you're you're thinking about like, okay, so will they use force against Taiwan? The documents don't make that clear. So like Pete would say, yes, of course, Pete Mattis, he would say, yeah, of course they're going to use force on Taiwan. But it's not at all obvious. And that's not what the documents are saying. So and then Josh Schifferson is like saying that we shouldn't take these documents too seriously, but taking them seriously or not doesn't change the fact that they're not telling you China's blueprint for, you know, global takeover or invasion. Um, so there's a lot that's left unsaid, even if you were to settle whether or not to take the documents seriously. So there's room to reconcile here, but it's just a very like polarized debate. And I feel like most serious people are not jumping on either side of this. Uh, so that's my piece. So that you're like a whole different category of this argument. So these two are on like two different ends of the spectrum. And you're saying like, oh, you sit on like a completely different line. I mean, I, I take Chinese intentions seriously. I take the documents seriously. Or I take the what Sinologists say about the documents seriously. But that actually doesn't tell me much other than that China has like a pretty aggressive foreign policy that you still have to figure out where you're going to push back, how, where the question is a matter of deterrence versus some other tool of statecraft, right? Are you, right? And are you seriously talking about military interventions in certain places, or are you using the language of war around other softer issues or political competition issues, economic coercions, manipulating rare earth mineral exports? That's not, that's something to like, figure out or keep an eye on you don't want to ignore it but you don't want to blow it up into being like something that you go to war over and so i just i'm a hawk on china basically i just don't i take china at their word that they have intentions that we would characterize as revisionist but just because you have a revisionist actor doesn't mean you have war like it, you have to there's a lot that's under specified yeah. here and the second question is from Nate Reynolds. Did you see the Last Dance documentary about Michael Jordan? Do you think he's like Trump? Is he a closet rep Republican? This is such a funny question. <laughs> um, so I have seen, I haven't seen the whole thing. Uh, it's coming out like one episode a week or something. I've seen most of it. And uh, I'm, the thing that seemed like Trump was that Michael Jordan apparently is an asshole. He takes everything personally but it's it's also what makes him great. Like it's what drives him to work harder than everybody else. And so he's great because he puts in more work than everybody to be great. And he does that. He put the fuel for that is his being an asshole alpha male. So <laughs> like yeah. it, that's kind of the that first part is kind of Trumpian, right? Asshole alpha male. But Trump doesn't put in more work than anybody else. He doesn't put in more work than anybody, you know, like yeah. <laughs> there's nothing great about him. He has achieved nothing except for like hoodwinking people, like, you know, brainwashing his cult following or whatever. Like he hasn't accomplished shit. He's, in, he's in accomplished dividing people. Yeah. Making a, creating a divide. Great win. I mean, like, is that Jordan like? I don't think so. So I, the only thing I see in common with the two of them is that they both have an asshole streak. But at least with Jordan, it's like he's doing something inspiring. He's a savant, you know. So there was an episode a couple of weeks ago where a racist uh, senator in his home state 
uh, of North Carolina was running and there was a, a black Democrat who was running for Senate against him. And his mom, Jordan's mom, asked him to like come out publicly to support the Democrat, also the black guy. And also his opponent is a racist, right? And he refused to. And when he was asked by a reporter why he refused to speak out in favor to, to endorse the, the black guy who was the Democrat, he said Republicans buy Nikes too. Oh, bro, no. And, <laughs> um, Yo. I don't think he's a Republican because he said he he said he ultimately gave money donating to the the Democrats campaign, but I think he's just a hyper capitalist, the Muhammad Ali of capitalism or something. <laughs> oh, no, I think we need to watch this documentary. It's on my list for Netflix to watch. Even if you don't do basketball, it's pretty good. Man, I'm just going to stick to Space Jam or something. It might make me feel sad if I like watch him being an asshole about things. They talk about Space Jam, too. Oh, such a good movie. I'll <laughs> say that right now. The third question is from Sarah Al, who is from the University of Toronto. She says, I'm supposed to graduate, graduate next year with a BA in international relations. Should I get a master's degree in IR as well? Is the cost worth it? And I want to know this answer because I also am graduating, due to graduate next year and I want to do a master's. <laughs> so if you're into this field, I think you have to get the master's because that's become sure. the, the, new, the new entry level degree. 40 years ago, it was the BA. Maybe 20 years ago, it was still a BA, like to go onto the job market, you know? Now it seems like master's is the minimum. The trouble is that it also may not be enough. And so you might have to do another degree or a PhD or like a certificate or something. But I feel like that as a first step, the master's in IR makes sense. Stay <laughs> forever. Basically. I feel like Van, the number of people asking you for like a career advice and where to go, me included, I know I'm guilty. Like you need to get paid or something for like all of this. There's a lot. There's a lot of that. But like, I, I mean, I had these same questions. 20 years ago, which is an embarrassingly long time ago, but I didn't have anybody to ask and we were not connected up to other people. We couldn't reach out to strangers for sure. You know, like there was no way. Yeah. So at least you can, I don't know, hear me pontificate, I, 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 <laughs> whatever that's worth. Okay. The final question is from Masshole. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Mass how to try to get out with that name, but... Masshole is what they call assholes from Massachusetts. Their question is, what do you make of Henry Kissinger's, I can say, war criminal, peacemaker, genius, idiot, narcissist? <laughs> um, so, actually, the New Yorker had a piece about Henry Kissinger recently that was... It was very good. And it was it was kind of arguing, like... Yeah, Henry Kissinger is as just a bad of a guy as you think, but actually he's not as important as you think. And so he's become a convenient foil for people, uh, particularly in the establishment, to kind of like foist all of their sins upon him. And actually, like we were all, we elites, like more culpable in the bad war criminal decisions that Henry Kissinger was involved in than what history popularly um, suggests and so Kissinger is kind of like all of these things like definitely a war criminal um, Christopher Hitchens before he died he wrote a book 
about make basically make prosecuting a legal case against Kissinger for war crimes, and it was pretty pretty damning, pretty solid. It has mostly to do with secret bombing campaign of Laos and Cambodia, and he also was a a peacemaker, although it was basically just laying the groundwork for like creating the economic interdependence with China that we now view as like basically a bad thing. So I don't know how um, valuable that was. It's better than war for sure. He was a smart guy. He was not an idiot. I don't know if he was a genius. Um, most IR scholars don't think very highly of him, but most policy people think very highly of him. So uh, maybe he was just good at like managing his brand or his public image. I basically don't like him. I rode an elevator with him once and talked to him briefly. And <laughs> we were at a conference together once where we sort of chatted um it was like a, a group of us i didn't really engage him directly um but i got some insights from him i think i've mentioned on the podcast before about like how he views korea as the only pathway to war with the u.s and china that was the most useful thing i've ever gotten out of him in my life um and beyond that that says a lot yeah, beyond that, I don't care much for him. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic if you want to throw money at us. Uh, thanks to Blake uh, Herzinger and Chris Nixon, I think, for buying me coffees recently. WPR.pub slash undiplomatic for the World Politics Review newsletter. Sign it up and love it. Catch you next time. Peace.